0: I really love that hymn, that, that expectation of Jesus, right? That cry of, come thou long expected Jesus. You know, he's here, he's alive, but now come to me and in me and, and let me worship you. That's actually what we're going to talk about today during the sermon. But, but I love, you know, even though it's a little of that King James-y feel to it, I, I love that, that prayer of him coming and resting with us and in us, and not just to give us power or whatever, but to change our hearts and bring us peace. That's that's really what this message of this baby is all about. I'm Trevor Owen. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here at Hillspring, and and this Sunday, well, it's actually the third day of Christmas. Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day, so I still get to talk about it. And we're going to talk about the Magi. Now, if you've been following our sermon series, we've worked our way through Luke and the annunciations from the angels and different, different people you know, declaring that Jesus was here. But today I want to talk about sort of a, a footnote story that comes out of Matthew to that. Now, we're going to talk about the Magi. The, the three kings, the three wise men, whatever they get called in contemporary Christian, right? I mean, if you, if you pick up any coloring book or turn on the radio, you hear, we three kings of Orientar, they're kind of famous and synonymous with it. And in fact, if you come to our living nativity, it's pretty amazing. I mean, we, we have live camels, and these guys come in with the camels, and they circle around up here, and they come down, and, and the three kings get off you know, with their with the treasures and their little entourage, and they end up coming forward and kneeling before baby Jesus here, and the camels sit right there in the corner and you know, make life difficult for their camel handlers. It's a beautiful image. And it's this, this sense of, of even the rich and the powerful bowing down before Jesus, which is really cool. And if you go check out our Facebook page or our website, you can see the streaming nativity that we filmed this year, which is awesome. But here's the thing, it probably didn't happen that way. In fact, if you go into Matthew, by the time the Magi show up, Joseph and Mary are living in a house with a, a young Jesus. I mean, he's probably he's somewhere under the age of two, most likely. But, but this is what Matthew tells us, starting in Matthew chapter 2, It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star and its rising and have come to worship him. I mean, this would have been huge. Like all of a sudden, you know, we don't know how many there were, right? I mean, there could have been three, there could have been 12, there could have been a huge entourage and, and probably a very large one, though they were probably riding camels probably a large group from somewhere over in Persia, Iran or or that area, um, had come. Now, they had been watching the stars. See, the the word for wise men there is is magi or or magus, which was uh, basically sorcerers, enchanters, divination readers, readers of astrology and the signs. There, There was a whole class of them you know, sort of these ancient priests that that spent this time staring into the heavens and trying to understand what was going on. Now, they would have known that there were prophecies that had come out of Israel of a a great king. Now the Jewish people thought that this great king would eventually rule the world. The rest of the world probably wasn't that far along on understanding it, but they would have picked up on these prophecies that there was this great powerful king coming, somebody truly significant. And and these Magi would have been looking to the heavens and it, and it says that they they saw this star, right? Rise. Now there's a lot of debate as to what that star was. I mean, it could be something as simple as a, a supernova that exploded and, and there is a recorded supernova about five BC, right in the time Jesus would have been born, uh, mostly recorded by Chinese uh, astrologers and astronomers back in the day. But maybe it was this you know supernova that that showed up and they led him to it. or uh, also Halley's comet was on rotation. And usually there was a sign of uh, some kind of significant event in the world that was going to take place when a comet would appear. And actually it would have been pointing into Leo, which was, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's some possibility that that, that tied in. The other option could be just like this last week where we saw the Christian, or the, the Christmas star. The, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn Now, actually, if you scale back to about five BC, the same thing happened. And and actually, you know, when the planets are are conjuncting like that, that we can see them from various spaces. And actually within one year, that conjunction would have been seen three times. In fact, uh, according to Raymond E. Brown, the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn took place three times that year in the zodiac constellation of Pisces. Pisces is a constellation sometimes associated with the last days and with the Hebrews, while Jupiter, an object of particular interest among the Parthenian astrologers, was associated with the world ruler, and Saturn was identified as the star of the Amorites of the Syrian-Palestinian region. The claim has been made that this conjunction might lead Parthenian astrologers to predict that there would appear in Palestine among the Hebrews a world ruler of the last days, which I think is really cool. But it's also circumspect. But regardless of how this all played out right, there's this sign that appears in the heaven, and these pagan astrologers and sorcerers read it and go, we need to go and find that guy and pay tribute to him. We need to worship this child that has been born. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That these pagan people that had very little understanding of God were spoken to and called by God to come and worship this child. Now, they weren't entirely in the dark. I mean, they had read the, you know, the ancient... Hebrew Old Testament and the Torah, and been given, you know, a, sort of a heads up of of Israel and and Yahweh, and in fact, if you read in Numbers I don't know, about twenty chapters twenty four through twenty six, there's the story of Balaam, who comes from that area, is from the Medes and the Persians, who was a Magi, and he actually prophesies over the Israelite people. In fact, it says in, in Numbers 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. I mean, those are words by an ancient Magi. Put that aside, I mean, that would have happened hundreds of years before and it, it wouldn't have really been on their radar until something showed up and they started seeking trying to understand. What is God trying to tell us through the universe? And I think it's really cool how God has built into the fabric of our world, his fingerprints for us to chase down when we're seeking, when we're looking. I mean, even Romans chapter one, verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, no matter what is going on in our world, God is at work seeking each of us. In, in fact, all over the world, God is at work speaking to and calling people to Him. Now we'll get into kind of what that looks like in a second, but but I want to hear, I want you to hear that that these pagan sorcerers see this star search out what it means, and then pack up everything and come to give tribute and worship to this baby. I mean, it's a remarkable story of seeking and pursuing God. Which, of course, they do. They pack up, they head that way, they show up in Israel, they see King Herod, because, of course, you go to the current king of Israel, right? Herod, Herod the Great. And they come to him and they, they say to him, where is this, you know, king of the Jews that has been born? We, we want to worship him. We saw that star. And there's such a different reaction in Israel. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd his people. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, Everyone when you find him, report back to me so that I may go and worship him too. You know, you would think, right? There's this entourage from the east that has seen these signs and is seeking God. This prophesied Messiah shows up in Jerusalem, says, hey, we're here. We've got gifts. We want to honor this guy. You would think the people of Israel would go, our Messiah has arrived. Yay. And you don't see that. You see them being deeply disturbed. Afraid, You see, there's a huge contrast here between those who, who really have no business trying to understand who Jesus was, who Yahweh was, and the people who really should have known him, that were his people. I I, I mean, these foreigners go on this huge journey to find and worship this child based on some signs in the heavens. And literally the, the priests and the prophets and the king, Herod, who's ruling over them, have these prophecies and can even say where he's born. And yet they're not at all interested in worshiping him. They're more interested in worshiping their power, what they have, I mean, Herod was on the throne and eh, the more powerful people get, the more paranoid they get that they're going to be, they're going to lose it. And so even this prophecy of a young baby terrifies Herod, terrifies the religious leaders, and they, they get deeply disturbed. And they're like, what, what, what is going on? No, we, we, we don't, yeah, we need to figure out what to do with this. <laughs> you know, it's pretty amazing from his birth until literally his death. Jesus finds himself at odds with the ruling powers. And it's because of his message. His message that says, it's not about the power struggles of the world. It's not about might. It's not about getting ahead. It's not about prestige. It's about love. I mean, this is the message of Jesus, right? He lays down all his power for the sake of coming and being born in a stable and Backwoods place, powerless. And that message, strangely, grates on the soul of people who have stuff. Of course, that doesn't mean that they don't pretend to be religious. And I see in this a huge warning. And I think about that often in our world when there are political people or athletes or whatever, actors that claim to have faith. They say, oh yeah, I'm on God's side. I want to worship him. You know, he's, he's, you know, I'm his man. But they can have very dubious motives. There's a lot of power in allying yourself with people of faith, right? Just a little aside. But Herod is saying, hey, I want to come and worship this child. And the Magi are like, okay, we'll go find him and tell you. Eh, False motives. The story continues, though, because the the Magi leave. And it says in Matthew 2, 9 through 12, After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. (laughs) They keep seeking. They take the clues presented by the religious people who really don't want anything to do with Jesus. And they go and they find him. And they worship him. And they give him tribute. Right? There's this image here, which is remarkable that there are these pagan people of power and wealth that know that they're longing for something, that there is a great ruler coming or, or somebody that the heavens are declaring and they, they come and find him and they give to him and they bow down and they worship him. As contrasted to Herod, who shortly after the Magi leave gets angry and sends his army to wipe out all children under two years of age in Bethlehem. I mean, Herod goes crazy trying to kill people, children, to protect and hold on to, to what he already has. And I see in the, this, these two things a difference of faith. I mean, Herod and the other ruling powers assume that what they have is what's most important. You know, my house, my stuff, my rule, my authority, my control. They get consumed by it. And the Magi you see kneeling down and giving it away and going home with joy. I mean, this is the dichotomy of the gospel. You know, there are so often that we miss the significant things of life, faith, hope, love, peace, joy, because we get so stuck on clinging on to and holding on to our own stuff. I mean, if there's one personal application out of this, there's a lot, but if there's one I would highlight, it's that we get stuck clinging to our stuff and the worries and cares of this world crush out our faith, our ability to really see Jesus. I mean, Matthew picks up this thread later and when he's describing Jesus preaching and and Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? You see, the Magi find hope and joy and excitement in seeking Jesus and giving to him. Whereas Herod ends up in a few verses, losing his life and his throne and dying with nothing. Because the Prince of Peace doesn't come to control the world. He comes to bless it, to encourage us, to give us hope, to say it's not about the power and the stuff and the money. It's about laying our lives down, loving others, serving them. And that is a message the world needs to hear. I mean, that is the gospel. You know, it makes me think, thinking of these magi, who around us has seen symbols and signs of God and just need a little point of clarification as to how to worship Him or who He is? You know, about three years or so ago, I was in Iraq, in Kurdistan, and I was working in these refugee camps. And, I, and we came to this place where, uh, the, one of the tents, right, and there's a family of about nine that lived in the tents. And, and one of them, they had asked us to come and try and talk to and counsel the husband or the father in this house. And this man had been here for two years. They'd been bombed out of Syria and fled with nothing and were staying in this little tent inside of a refugee camp. And he had been totally traumatized. And for two years, the family told us that he did nothing but drink tea and smoke cigarettes. And was, you know, I mean, there's a tiny small amount of money that the family was able to scrape together. He was literally burning it up and smoking it. And so we asked, well, why don't you, why don't you just stop bringing him this stuff if he, if he doesn't get up? And they're like, yeah, he doesn't even go outside. He won't talk to anybody hardly. Like he just lays in his bed and demands that we bring him tea and cigarettes. And we said, well, why don't you stop bringing him? And he we said, well, we we'll try that. But whenever we do, he just gets angry and grabs the nearest one of us, whether children, wife, whatever, and starts beating him until we bring him. This man had literally been laying there doing nothing for two years. So we came in and we talked with him. Didn't really make a whole lot of progress. Didn't feel like there was, you know, much that we offered. Talked about Jesus and then we offered to pray for him and we prayed for him, that God would heal his mind and whatever. And I left and I turned to my friend who was with me and I said, I I don't know what God can do with that. Like, it seems pretty stuck. So anyway, next day I wasn't there, but my friend who I was with came back. And the, the director of the camp, who was not a Christian, was walking with her again and visiting some of the various uh, tents. And there was this little girl with them that they called the lawyer, jokingly, because she talked all the time. She was just... And so the lawyer and the camp director and my friend were walking. And all of a sudden, this man walked up to him that we'd been praying for the day before. And the camp director was just stunned. She was like, I, I haven't seen this man out of his tent in two years. And he just said, yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling better today. I'm feeling like I I needed to get outside and go see some light and and go for a walk. And the little lawyer girl who had been with us the day before turned to the camp director and said in front of my friend, their God, he answers prayers more powerfully than ours. (laughs) See, God is at work. And when people see God at work, They notice, they pay attention, they bow down, they worship. Now I'm not saying that every person around the world needs to become some kind of Christian like we are. (laughs) I, I, I mean, that would be great if they truly sincerely follow Christ. But our job as Christians is simply to point the way to him and let God do that work. To, to see where are people in the world hurting and seeking and show God's love, his compassion. Pray for him, encourage him, invite him to in church. God is at work everywhere. And so often I think we get stuck thinking about what we have and our systems and our processes and what we like and has to be this way in our buildings and done this to, And we miss, there's just a world that is longing for Come thou long expected Jesus. Can I challenge you? This 27th of December, it's the end of 2020 and it's been a crazy weird year. Can we figure out what things in our lives at the end of this year that we've been clinging to, fears, power, struggle, ideologies, political affiliations, whatever it is that has separated us from this simple message of Jesus. I came to lay my life down, to set aside power, to simply love people, to reach out to them, to encourage them, to give them hope and peace. That is a message the world is longing for. Whether you're a pagan sorcerer in Persia or cashier at the grocery store down the street, or maybe your spouse or child. Let's, let's worship this King of Kings, not just in words and deeds, but with our actions. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you became nothing for us, that you laid your life down. And God, I thank you that you show us, even in your birth story, that that people from around the world can see and recognize you at work. And I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see where you're at work in the world right around us. And I pray that you would continue to bring your hope and your peace and your light into the darkness to help bind up the wounds of the broken. May we humbly follow you in that work. And may we lay down the things that we so tightly cling to but I have nothing to do with you. I give you thanks and give you praise. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless.